hello to everybody both here on Zoom and live on Facebook and perhaps watching it later on on Facebook or YouTube. My name is Ember Kelly and I am the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. Always a little bit of a handful getting all that out. I am joined tonight by uh, our amazing Assistant Director of Religious Education, Colin Wolf. Hello all, thank you for having me, Ember. Excited to talk about this. Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, and welcome to our, our first of what is hopefully going to be like a continuing series of what we're calling pop culture and theology, where we kind of take uh, a look at something relevant in uh, general pop culture and see like some of the deeper meanings in it, uh, see if it's got connection to our own searches for meaning. Uh, and today, specifically, we are looking at uh, The Legend of Zelda. Um, and so, you know, let's see maybe a uh, show of hands of, of who knows what, what Zelda is, who knows uh, about the legend of Zelda. Um, okay, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing a good few hands here. Yeah, that looks pretty positive. I know we've got a few people who've told me that they didn't know a ton, so it's okay to also not know a ton, and we're going to have a little brief introduction, and hopefully I have watched enough uh, Legend of Zelda videos recently to be uh, very much able to give you a good quick summary. So Legend of Zelda is a series that has been around, I think this is the 35th uh, anniversary this year, uh, has been around across multiple Nintendo consoles. So for all the way from uh, the Super NES and the NES uh, up until the present day, uh, ranging from uh, a variety of like top-down, very pixelated titles to uh, the currently the most recent one was an open world uh, exploration title, uh, Breath of the Wild. And they've had all sorts of various uh, adventures in between, but all of them tend to focus around a few things, and that is that there is a hero, usually called Link, uh, a princess, a queen, uh, some person of that variety uh, uh, named Zelda, or sometimes a similar name, usually often with an A uh, at the ending, uh, and then uh, some sort of evil power um, that most often relates to a figure known as uh, Ganondorf uh, or Ganon. Uh, but that's also uh, a, a bit of a further um, discussion that we can talk about as we go into this. Uh, but so all of these are like quests, you go on quests to complete tasks and gain the weapons that you need to face this, this ultimate evil and to bring balance back only to have to do the same thing in the next game a few years later. And so uh, Colin and I have prepared a few questions uh, to get us kind of going in our discussion and we're gonna kind of just have a very conversational back and forth for a little bit uh, about some of the stuff that we've uh, discussed in preparation uh, and then towards the end we will open it for public discussion uh, if you're on facebook feel free to leave questions and we'll come check there but then as we move to the public discussion on zoom uh, we will stop sharing it live on facebook so that everybody can feel free to to share uh, and so we will have a little bit of time for that at the end as well. If you come up with something that you're really interested in hearing and uh, want to see me and Colin try and go for the answer on. So uh, Colin, would you like to, to kick us off with our first question? Sure. Um, all right, we got in the chat. Okay, so we, we're going to talk about the, the Triforce and the Trinity. Uh, so the, the Triforce is the great sacred symbol of this game series. There's a creation myth involving three goddesses, Din, Faror, and Nehru, and they are respectively the goddesses of power, uh, courage, and wisdom. 
and the Triforce, uh, which I think Ember has a visual aid there to show us. So conveniently, I've brought the Zelda encyclopedia with today. Right, is uh, a representation of the, the, their efforts in concert. Right, but it's not just a, a symbol. It also has an actual locus, sometimes at the gate to, sometimes within something called a sacred or golden realm. And it is both uh, most powerful when it's fully intact, but it is divisible. If someone touches the Triforce and doesn't have that balance of qualities within them, of those virtues of courage and power and wisdom, then it will fragment. And there will be a sort of uh, equilateral stigmata on the hands of three incarnations of those virtues within Hyrule, uh, which is the world in which this series takes place. There are some uh, adjacent or nearby kingdoms that are sometimes referenced, but in the original creation myth of Hyrule, uh, it is described as though it is the world itself. So uh, religion, uh, not just Christianity with the Trinity is what might come to mind uh, for a lot of Western viewers, but uh, mythology and faiths of the world are replete with trios of uh, sets of virtues, also of goddesses. We have uh, in, in Greek myth, there's there's tons of them, the, the Gorgons, the Furies, the Graces, the, the Moirai or Fates. Uh, and But then of course there are uh, there's Northwestern European pagan beliefs, and there's pre-Islamic Arabian triads that are similar and pair sets of goddesses with particular virtues. Uh, so, Ember, what do you think? Why, why this set for Zelda? Why wisdom, courage, and power? Uh, do those three complement each other well? What, what is their function for the player and the mythology? Well, you know, so one has to wonder if, you know, they... they... The Triforce was perhaps just invented as you know this thing to to get, but it does seem to serve like a a pretty solid like story basis that it's about uh, discovering these character traits uh, in the characters and in the world. So I think you know that it's this this um, you know to some level this this image of balance that like these three factors are kind of often at, at interplay in our world that like. There's courage that people have to have courage to you know do the right thing. People want to gain power. Is power always bad? There's a question to be considered. Uh, is, you know, wisdom. What is wisdom? I mean, I, th I think that's the one that I, as I prepared for this, that I really was like, okay, you know, Zelda. She's this character that oftentimes is very silent, held captive, uh, uh, and you know, but yet she's she's portrayed as this incarnation of wisdom. So, like, what exactly is? Wisdom. So I think you know, there's it's it's really interesting that that these are the three chosen thing. You know, like power and courage. Those ones, you know, kind of make sense in an epic a story of epic struggle. But like, where does where does wisdom come in to balance that out? And like, why is it uh, this pr this princess who's often a little bit quieter in the story, um, unless she's in disguise? Uh, but uh, who's you know the the wise one? We don't often see her wisdom on display. In the more recent game, Breath of the Wild, we do see that she's like researching some of the technology and things like that and so like it shows like this bit more academic side but like besides that in some of the other games it's been a question of like what is, what is this wisdom uh that she has but yeah i think that it's it's interesting that they did choose to go with you know this number three which like has so much uh religious significance like in different um different cultures and different things as you said the trinity uh and um, definitely, uh, you know, even like the, the mother maiden crone imagery and uh, like more uh, modern day paganism. There, there's so many of these, these sets of three. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, I mean, plus, you know, I feel like a lot of people have really cool 
uh, Triforce tattoos. Now that the series has been out for a while, um, I have not gotten one yet. Uh, but you know, I think it's I think it's interesting, and I think that perhaps one of the things that really interests me is like how it's so often split apart. Like that, it's not you know it, it talks about it in the mythos that like this is this this thing that's always together, but in nearly all of the stories, it's it's, it's split apart. So. You know, what do you, what do you think about that? About like that um, that these things are always seem to be separated, and it's on the player to like figure out um, what to do with them in the game world. Yeah. Um, so the the idea that you can be tested with the degree to which you have managed to combine all these traits through the encounter of the entryway to the to the sacred realm uh, that has kind of a, a tinge of Zoroastrianism in it, where their recommendations uh, are good deeds, good thoughts, and good words. And if you follow that roadmap, then when the time of judgment comes, uh, if you have balanced those out, then it, that will be a determ determining factor about the where you end up in the afterlife, the sort of dualistic judgment of the, the uh, paradise of songs. That music plays a very strong and theurgic quality in the Legend of Zelda series as well, or an eternity in a house of lies. Um, it's funny that wisdom is the one that you're a little more hung up on for me it's courage is the one that i kind of think of as the is the odd one out that's the one i have trouble really reconciling as completing the set um and so i guess uh the way i try to fix that is i apply it to what what is the player's experience with those three you know the legend of zelda kind of distinguishes itself from other uh, kind of hack and slash fantasy adventures like I don't know Gauntlet Legends, in that it really emphasizes a puzzle-solving element. It emphasizes in interactivity with the citizens, the the uh, the inhabitants of that world. It it emphasizes an altruism on their behalf. Um, so it's not just about the acquisition of powers, which can then be unleashed on mindless uh, AI hordes, but it's also about actually trying to observe your environment uh, and and follow its signage to to the ends that you're trying to achieve so wisdom there's is pretty clear to me in terms of how how the the player is challenged to rise to that occasion uh, and then power of course that that is probably the the most straightforward of the three in a, in a gaming world experience you want to level up you know you want to you want to get the artifacts you want to you know, increase your health meter and then you want to you know wreak havoc on the antagonistic forces. So power is pretty straightforward from a from a typical gaming perspective. But courage, I can only uh, if if I try to square that with both a a gaming experience and a wider kind of cosmological set, I have to sort of translate that into uh, just will the the raw awareness, the decision and volition that is playing that is continuing in the game. And then wisdom guides the decision-making process within the game. And then the power is the degree to which you are actually equipped to influence the environment of the gaming world. So that's that's kind of how I think about, about that anastomosing the in-game cosmology and then the challenge put to the player. Does that does that yeah, seem no definitely when I think you hit on there, one of the things that you and I had talked about as we as we prepared for this is that we we have experience with with different versions of the games that you're much more familiar with the earlier games and I'm much more familiar with like Wind Waker and on, uh, including uh, Breath of the Wild being my, my most recently uh, finished uh, game. And you hit on it though, that these like, that things can change so drastically between uh, each of these games that like, um, and including the, the Triforce itself um, and how, they're, how the Triforce is appearing, um, you know, in 
in Ocarina of Time, it's very much about like this uh, establishing much more of the mythos of of the Triforce. Whereas in Breath of the Wild, the most recent game, uh, the only time you really see the Triforce is just when Zelda is using some sealing powers, and so there's not really a discussion of that this is um, you know this is what the Triforce is in this mythos. It's not not quite there. So it's interesting how the games can so drastically change and how also like, you know, each person is going to bring such a different uh, perspective to each of those games and to take away just completely different meanings. You know, I, I, I joke about watching lots of Zelda videos, but you know, there's thousands of them on YouTube that are just pouring over every little detail and connecting it to a detail in another game and putting together these elaborate theories uh, because each person is going to approach this. And I think that that's, you know, the interesting thing about this, uh, it, about what you said there is how you, uh, for you, it's courage was the one that seemed strange and out of place. So each of us even experiences the story a little bit differently, uh, which I think is a really great thing. Um, I mean, I know that the um, the creators have talked about that, that Link, the main character, that the reason he's called Link is because he's your link into the world. So, you know, what, what is your thoughts on that? Like that, that your relationship to the games, like what, what, what does that mean to you? Yes, uh, I had uh, perhaps an even, uh, even more of a kind of a path of least resistance in projecting myself onto Link because, you know, I encountered this game when I was a little blonde boy, you know? <laughs> and so uh, that, that just happened to be um, just, you know, some iconography that I could link myself up to very easily. Um, but something that struck me about, about Link from the outset uh, in comparison to equally perhaps or more famous mascots even in the gaming world like Sonic or Mario, um, you can sometimes name a file, a save file when you're playing a Mario or a Sonic game. But in The Legend of Zelda, you are given the opportunity to actually name the character. I, I don't know of any Mario games in which in the game world, your name, you have named Mario after yourself and the characters in the game world were talking to Mario, use that name, right? It's always, they're addressing that mascot. That mascot is married to his particular personality, uh, his particular set of powers that sometimes changes, sometimes expands, um, but he hasn't undergone the same kind of revolutions of uh, garb and look and shape and age that Link has. And so, you know, that, that, that on its own grants the player a certain ownership over the character. They are placing themselves within the game world. They can name it whatever they want. Sometimes they name it after themselves. Uh, you know, every middle schooler thought that, uh, that they were the only one who decided to put something, you know, lewd and ridiculous in there so that the players, myself included, you know, so that the in-game players, when they would address themselves to, to Link would, you know, say something say something uh you know obscene or or, or ridiculous is, you know <laughs> cho choos choosing perhaps you know fart over here you know uh, when when they're being called out too <laughs> exactly exactly um but i think that that element of ownership over link is pretty important because uh until breath of the wild which you just mentioned these games have not actually been completely open world um role-playing construct your character from the ground up series of choice-making adventures, right? There has been always this combination of linearity and choice of, uh, you know, a teleology of Hyrule, clear platforming elements, the world constructed with signs of design for play really evident in the world and elements of the world that look more like they're actually adapted from an organic nature, uh, open for, for discovery. And so 
giving the player that extra sense of, of control over uh, the, the identity of this avatar, uh, whoever they are, uh, I think uh, helped to offset and even uh, mask in many ways that essential linearity and determinism of the world. And that, that was one of the topics that we wanted to, to hit on. Yeah, no, definitely. I, you know, I think that um, to, to some level, even with the like limited choice available in some of the early games, that this is this was a lot of people's like first experience with. I, I don't know that many people. I think at, at the time where people used the term like uh, adventure game, uh, and even Breath of the Wild, they call open air game because they always got to you know come up with a slightly different title. But you know, it was it was probably for me before something like Final Fantasy. Uh, it was like the closest I had come to like. The idea of a role-playing game that you're on this grand adventure that like it was up to you to like figure it out versus like okay I'm going from one side of this uh this screen to the other and I'm gonna jump over things and I'm gonna get the bad guys or you know I'm gonna get to the uh top of this stage in this Mario 64 or something like that you know this was this was the first experience uh, interestingly enough that you you bring this up how Breath of the Wild does this differently uh despite being like very interested in Zelda from like uh, gosh, I mean, as a kid, like I would borrow it from I borrow it from Blockbuster, uh, and I would. Um, but the thing was, is there was always like a save file that was pretty much already done. So I would just get on there and I would play with the already completed character, and I would just go explore around the world. And so I, I actually never like, despite just growing this huge fascination with this game world uh, and like playing most of the games since at least that have came out on consoles. I uh, I played Wind Waker, or I played Ocarina of Time, I never finished it. I played Wind Waker, nearly finished it, but never finished it. I played Twilight Princess, got 40 hours into it, and I never finished it. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, with, but with Breath of the Wild, suddenly I think the open world aspect kind of did uh, lure me in a little bit more to spend the time just like, you know, I, I often like those games where I can just kind of wander around and, and do things. Uh, and, you know, it was kind of refreshing, but, um, you know, I think uh, that you were right though, that like the, the base game itself, like uh, still had this sense of like wonder and wanting to explore, even if there was limits on it. And like, that was such a different experience for, for those of us who were raised with maybe like Mario um, at the time. Um, so I don't, you know, what, like, what was your experience like growing up with the games? How many of them have you beaten? <laughs> I think I've only beaten uh, three, and those would be the the three that I that I have, which is a link to the past, to the uh, for the Super Nintendo, and then the two Nintendo sixty four titles, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. Um, it's it's funny that you uh, you describe it. I've I've observed a lot of them playing, and I've played at friends' houses, and and I'm at least conversant in most of most of the entries. But you you describe kind of a journey of uh, hopscotching from game to game until you encountered that one that really just spoke to you, and it was the really open-ended one. Uh, my experience with Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, uh, which uh, for those of you who have played the game, they, the games, they play very much with the cycle of time, with uh, repeating patterns, with going back and forth between childhood and adulthood. Um, my experience with those two games is one of repetition. I will play through Ocarina of Time and then give it a year and a half, two year gap where I won't touch it and I'll dust it off and it'll be like like new again and it will go over and over like the <laughs> like the hero's uh, reincarnations. Um, 
but you know, you just you described that difference between the the open world, Breath of the Wild, you know, massive uh, experience that I think a lot of gamers are used to now. Um, for me, I play Breath of the Wild, and that's the one that that uh, holds my attention for the least amount of time compared to uh, to, to Ocarina and and Majora's Mask. Uh, it's, I guess maybe a little bit there's a there's a bias of theatrical perspective there because I I think of um, my imagination is really just kind of fired up by the idea of um, suggestive minimal spaces that get as much as they can out of a bounded, a bounded venue. And so it's about uh, the granular approach. It's about the crevices. Um, you know, it's, it's about, it's about uh, making a second totally thorough sweep of each of those little connected rooms that comprise a very kind of impressionistic forest. You know? And so I, I kind of, um, I would almost prefer to have a, a, a virtual reality experience, uh, which these games are, in which uh, as long as I can't actually be in that world, you know, I would I would almost rather it be bounded and then see the the implication of infinity or grandness trail off into the inaccessible wings. You know, that that impressionistic theatrical effect is one that I'm just really attached to. Uh, and so, but Breath of the Wild, it's almost uh, I'm almost overwhelmed by the by its its bid to replace my real reality with its its scale, you know. <laughs> no, definitely. Well, I know most recently, uh, uh, I've been playing through uh, Link Between Worlds on the DS, uh, which is uh, a link uh, to the past, basically remixed uh, for the present day with some some different uh, setups and technically like a, it's a sequel that remakes it as well. Um, but you know, one of the things that I really did actually like about it. Uh, and what you were kind of talking about there is that you can like get this mastery of it, like that I, you know, was going around and just like getting to know every little area, finding all the secrets and looking for everything and meeting all the people and talking to them and figuring out who everybody was. You know, there there is something nice about that as well. Um, you know, I think for me, I, you know, I find such richness in, in both like styles that sometimes it, sometimes it's okay that life has that really strong structure and routine uh, and that a game does too and you know sometimes it's just really nice to like hop in a game where I can uh, like even though I've put probably like 60 hours into Breath of the Wild uh, recently I was I was playing and I was just wandering to a random corner and I encountered like a whole person like a person with a whole story uh, that I had never even heard of before and you know that was um, that it, it was it was so um, it was so amazing to me that I had played for all these hours, that I'd watched all these videos about like the lore of Breath of the Wild, and yet I still was discovering these new characters. Um, but then at the same time, there is like this richness to having this world where you can become the best at it because you've you've conquered it so many times. Right. And what is so? What are the implications if we were to circle back to the conversation about um, these demiurges and creation myths? Uh, what does it mean that there are so many different incarnations of ostensibly the same world why 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 can we both go back to hyrule and have this massive open world experience and also this this uh you know smaller sense of bounded connected rooms experience how, how are they all hyrule what is what does that mean for the lore yeah so you know one of the the big things as you were talking about was this this idea of time of of the hero repeating it again just like you repeated your playing of the game uh and you know so uh 
one of the perhaps most interesting in uh, maybe even I dare say controversial aspects is how Nintendo as a company has tried to make sense of the Legend of Zelda lore uh, aided by a community of people that have always been trying to piece it together. The first two, you know, were pretty straightforward like you, you're this guy venturing around on this map and you you find things and the Link to the Past brings in a little bit of a story but doesn't like try and link itself to the previous one. I get to say Link a lot in this, which is, you know, just appropriate. <laughs> and then but and then you get to Ocarina of Time, which presents like a story that's very much in the same vein as Ocarina, Ocarina of Time, uh, but like also completely new and different and bigger. But also once again, isn't like, oh, well this Princess Zelda is the uh, third niece of the Princess Zelda found in uh, the Zelda number two or something like that. They weren't trying to put in this meaning. They didn't quite, you know, understand that in the future we'd have YouTube um, and we'd have this means to, to sit around uh, pondering all these connections between the games. Uh, but then the thing was with Ocarina of Time is they followed it up with a sequel so that it wasn't something where it just introduced a whole new world but it did at the same time. So it was in the same world, but it was a different world in the same world. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit maybe about Majora's Mask as we talk about like the, the whole repeating of the, the stories here? Sure, yeah, well, I, I, I want to uh, take you up a little bit also on just the, what you, you introduced to the conversation, which is the idea of the kind of extended interconnected mythopoetical universe that is all these different Zelda installments. And, and that obviously there's a little bit of, of retconning there, right? I, they, we, we get to the, you know, now the 35th anniversary of this franchise. And just as we see happening with things like Star Wars, which is now so outsourced across different platforms and companies, um, there can get a point probably of diminishing returns at a kind of uh, after the fact effort to to reconcile all these different installments that were were just you know in the early days of this of this series like with George Lucas's you know a, a new hope just this kind of almost avant-garde attempt to see if this stuck you know and it, we were it was just trying to make it to the end of this instance of that interesting idea and then it blew up and and we are we are hungry for cohesion we're hungry for um you know for for pattern making and, and purpose right um and so you know fans attempting to to interlink every installment of the series will run into frustrations but it's a fun kind of cerebral exegetical exercise right it, it's it's a creative process and it, it's it's fun to to try it anyway um, but like you said, with Nintendo has now kind of formalized a, uh, a, a canon <laughs> of sorts, um, which, which introduces a whole new, uh, new element into, into that conversation. I mean, I feel like it's hard enough. Uh, I, I, I sometimes describe religion in, in Legend of Zelda as kind of a, a, a beautifully incoherent pluralism. Right? And it's, it's bad enough trying to really make rigorous sense of the the theology within a single game. You know, you could kind of you could imagine the king of Hyrule convening like Constantine an ecumenical council of sages to argue the canonical interpretation of the Triforce. Is it an emanation? No, it proceeds from the goddesses, but they are not subordinate to it. You know, um, <laughs> you could you could have apply a lot of those same arguments um, that wound us up with you know the Nicene Creed to you know this this fantastical contrived game playing experience um and that can be really fun recreationally but we also inevitably run into as often biblical scholars will frustrations of actually uh of actually conjuring up cohesion and pattern making across different elements when the authorship is so spread out 
you've got me kind of wanting to uh to make like a fan game that's you know the uh, the the legend of zelda and the the council of hyrule uh, we can we can make a little little fan game as you know someone who studied like uh, christianity's church history then you know i feel i feel like i have that special ability to make this this, this a, a reality maybe maybe fan fiction will be good enough um historianism and the triforce let's do it yeah <laughs> well and so but so going back majora's mask kind of hits on on this theme of time and of being kind of being kind of disconnected and you have much more experience with Majora's Mask than I do. I've, I've watched a million lore videos, but I've actually never uh, played it. Um, and so, you know, like, it seems to me that like this idea that um, Link goes to this other world where there's this imminent danger, but he can, you know, travel back in time. It seems so different than the structure of a lot of the other games. Um, you know, do you think that there's different meaning to be found in Majora's Mask than like is seen in some of the other games? I do. Uh, Majora's Mask is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, and you kind of see the approach of the series transition from a high fantasy to a much more kind of folkloric perspective. Whereas in Ocarina of Time, it's the entire hero's journey from boyhood to adulthood. Um, and there is uh, there is a, a really clear progression of power acquisition, and there's uh, a, a great uh, world implicating evil is vanquished. Majora's Mask uh, substitutes the kind of, the, so for those of you not familiar with Legend of Zelda, the major kind of levels or landmarks of progress in each of those games are called dungeons. And these are, uh, we'll talk, or, or temples. Um, we'll talk about these a little bit more uh, later on. We have, we have a bullet point for it. Um, but these are kind of elementally or regionally associated areas where the hero can test the skills that they've acquired up to that point. Ocarina of Time has, uh, I think, uh, not nine main ones um, and then a, a handful of smaller ones, maybe 10. Um, but Majora's Mask transitions away from those big landmarks of prowess, which are sealed off from the world, the hero descends into an area that is designed to test them. Majora's Mask instead transitions into the side quest, um, basically a series of kind of vignettes that are much more focused on uh, going on small missions in the actual, you know, inhabited world on behalf of its dwellers. And so there are only, there are only four dungeon landmarks in that one because it's much more concerned with actually keeping you engaged with the inhabitants of that space. And so it reads much less like a, a continuation of the epic saga. Um, it, it's a direct sequel because they used a lot of the same visual assets and it came out on the same platform shortly afterwards, um, but it doesn't really concern itself with the overarching and many times repeated battle of good and evil uh, between the major recurring characters. Uh, it's, 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 it's much more about uh, community. It's much more about, uh, about interactivity. It's much more about kind of, um, in, in kind of in the way we think of um, Arthurian legend, almost, you know, different knights of the round table going out to make their essays and they're not necessarily uh, linked together except in that we know they're part of the same mythos. So it's a much more kind of short story format that I find uh, I find really gratifying because I can kind of jump in whenever. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, populated with gentle and uh, and sometimes uh, striking surprises. Um, and 
and the function of time works very differently between the two games. Ocarina of Time, you can go between the timelines as a childhood and an adult, so it's a time lapse of seven years within that one game. Majora's Mask, we play with time a little bit differently. We focus instead, kind of like Groundhog Day, there's a three-day cycle that you repeat again and again and again, and you become more familiar with your environment with each go through until you find yourself adept at solving all of the uh, all the problems that you encounter on that stretch. Um, time is a, is a major through line of the series and of course one that has a lot of theological implications as well. Um, Ember, did you want to talk about that a little bit, get into the, the hero of time component? Uh, yeah, so we've kind of hit on it a little bit that, you know, there's that uh, Nintendo's put together this, this timeline and like so that they one of the more recently released games, Skyward Sword, which came out on the Wii, which was actually quite a long time ago, um, but it's technically more recent. Um, and uh, so technically it is the first in the timeline that it established, uh, establishes like the, the, the overarching mythos, which then uh, like, so it moves from uh, the main, in terms of the main games from Skyward Sword, and then that timeline moves pretty straightforward with some smaller games uh, down into Ocarina of Time. And then Ocarina of Time splits off because of uh, the time. Um, and so in Skyward Sword, they set out that there's this hero that helps uh, this Zelda character who turns out to be an incarnation of this other goddess, goddess Hylia, uh, who is trying to help humanity. And so she, like, so this, this hero helps save her from the incarnation of power and evil uh, that tries to conquer the world. He's this demon king demise. Uh, but he curses them at the end of the game, saying, "Well, now all the all future generations will still have to fight, you know, the same battle. That you know, I I won't ever, my I will always be haunting them, and that that is then seen as coming true in Ganondorf. So then, where the timeline splits again uh, is that they talk about the hero of time. So the main character of the Ocarina of Time uh, becomes known as the hero of time uh, because of his traveling back and forth, uh, but." So they have three timelines because so since he switches from child to adult at the end of the game, spoilers for anybody who hasn't played like a multi-decade old game, uh, at the end of the game of Ocarina of Time, uh, Link returns back to his childhood, uh, which then moves into Majora's Mask. Um, some people have said that's about processing trauma, but that is for psychology and, um, and The Legend of Zelda. Um, but so he... Um, he goes back to the childhood world and that creates one timeline, but then the adult world that he also saved where he's no longer becomes a timeline. And see, we have a courtesy of Colin. I will um, really quickly pin you, Colin, if I can get my computer to cooperate. Um, or Colin, if you wanna just turn on your speaker and let people, so people can hear you a little bit better with the picture sure. you got there. Uh, so it's just a little uh, side comparison of those two timelines being split, the hero as an adult, and the hero seven years earlier as a youth and the master sword, the taking up of the master sword, uh, which is what that weapon is called, is what provides the key to that transformation, that transformative growth. And so uh, you now have these two timelines, but then there's also the creation of another timeline, which is the world where he loses to Ganon, uh, which is called the dark world. And these sages have to come together and seal Ganon. And so, uh, much of the later mythos is around this main hero of time, like that becomes like the focus of how to understand the overarching story and branches of all the different parts of the story. Uh, but 
you know, it, it's interesting. Like I, I saw one of the points raised, you know, so what every time that he, you know, uh, dies fighting a random enemy in Ocarina of Time, does that mean there was a new timeline created? Does that mean that um, there is the world where nothing happened because Link died fighting the guy in the first dungeon? Um, you know, is that is that its own timeline that we will see someday? Um, luckily, like the most recent game, Breath of the Wild, uh, tried to resolve this tension by uh, just completely ignoring everything and moving it 10,000 years forward and not acknowledging all of the different stories, including a character from Majora's Mask who technically existed in an alternate dimension. Um, and so you, you have this game that brings it all together while setting itself so distantly in the future that it then really tries to make reference to the idea that these are legends, that these are the legends of Zelda, that the stories that are told of, of this hero of time, of the warrior of twilight, of the, the, the sea sailing warrior in Wind Waker, that, he, that these are all legends so long ago that like people know of them in like their, in their religious context, but that they, these are, these are just legends and that's how they've lost this ability to put precise uh, timelines together uh, and have all of them coexist in one. Um, however, that being said, they once again play with time in the most, most, most recent installment, which was a, uh, a spin-off game uh, and they play with time in that. I will not spoil that since that one technically only came out like two months ago, I will not spoil it, but they play with time again, um, technically creating a new timeline. And so this idea of, of playing with time and being so involved with time uh, seems to kind of follow him, Link everywhere since, uh, since the uh, Ocarina of Time. In Link to the Past, he, was, he went, traveled between two different worlds, but it wasn't any switch in time. Uh, and so there's, uh, there's this element that he's become um, this hero whose journey continues across incarnations, across lifetimes. And uh, sometimes they try to make it sound like he's the, the, new, the next heroes maybe from like a line of family related to Link. But most often it's that like this, that the hero just arises uh, when, when they need to. I can't help but think of um, the, the promise that was Star Wars The Force Awakens. Um, uh, when, but in that first advertisement, you know, when they say the dark rises and the light to meet it sort of thing, you know, this idea that like when um, the, the world is threatened, the, the courageous one will rise to the challenge, uh, no matter the incarnation, no matter the timeline, that someone will be there uh, and that person is the player, the link to the player. Um, and you are there to, to save that world. Uh, I don't you do, do you got any I, I see some nods of your head so I, I'd like to give you a chance there yeah I, no, I think that that makes perfect sense that uh, you know when we talk about reincarnation which is a, uh, a concept that crops up in a lot of different faith and philosophical traditions a lot of different permutations of that um, and thinking of the player as uh, the consciousness that is the through line to all these different incarnations um, makes a lot of sense uh, if we if we kind of bring a, a, a meta-narrative component of implicating the designers and the and the player into the video game, which as you know, one of the most interactive art forms, I think we must. The 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 mythology actually kind of uh, starts to answer its own questions in a way. Um, but yeah, the, the, even with just within the game world, reincarnation is played with differently. Like you say, it seems in some cases it's a, a 
actual spirit being recycled and manifest in different vessels. Other times it has more to do with an actual, uh, actual royal pedigrees, you know, so, you know, ancestry rather than, rather than actual spiritual recrudescence. Um, Breath of the Wild in particular uh, really has a kind of a platonic strain in it. Uh, in, in Plato's dialogue, The Republic, he ends with the, the myth of error where he talks about uh, his vision of what a reincarnation looks like. And it has to do with, uh, you are in the, the between state, between lives, and you decide if you, you know, if you are in a position to do so based on how well you lived, more or less the role you want to occupy in your next life. You drink from the river of forgetfulness Lethe, and then you are reborn. And so because you have lived a past life, you, you retain some basic intuitions about how to interact with the world in, in Plato's vision, but the actual memories that connect you with a really particular identity are washed away. And so as we encounter things in the world, as we learn, that process of learning is actually one of recollection. And that is essentially the entire theme of Breath of the Wild, uh, woken up kind of suspended in a pool of water, and you have some basic instincts about uh, warrior instincts coursing through you that allow you to kind of cobble together an early start in this world. But the entire journey is about rediscovering that previous identity. You want to talk a little bit more about that since you have more experience with that particular game? Ooh, yeah, um, and I, I really like that interpretation of that actually. Uh, this, the idea that you're, um, you know, that this is almost a, a past life regression and, and you know, modern, uh, perhaps more hippie psychological sense, um, but that, that Link is, is uncovering um, this thing while still having some, some intuition, which then relates back to this idea of like, what is, what is the, the meaning of, of the player being there? So like, you know, you, as, as you play Ocarina of Time repeated times, you become more skilled at it each time. And so you have become a better player by your 10th playthrough versus uh, when you were a young child playing it for the first time. And so like, you know, in, in some sense, you're coming to it with this, this memories of your past Zelda experiences. Um, but at the, and then connecting it to, with some, like what you were saying earlier, for you, Breath of the Wild was the strangest because so much of your past Zelda experiences were these much more structured. Uh, whereas like mine, my, my first really big Zelda experience was, was Wind Waker, which while it was straightforward, allowed for just sailing the ocean endlessly uh, as much as you wanted to and exploring and seeing what was out there. And so since that was my like foundational experience when I saw Breath of the Wild, it was like, ah, this is, this is the part that I loved about, about Wind Waker. And so, you know, we, just like Link, we come to it with these memories of what we liked from the past games and what we, how our skill levels, you know? So um, uh, one of the things I've gotten, um, as you know, as someone who helps me with, uh, with religious education on Sundays with, with the kids, uh, my own son Jude uh, is quite obsessed with The Legend of Zelda right now, but he has picked up, uh, he was struggling a little bit with, with Breath of the Wild, but we got him Age of Calamity and he's in learning all of the dynamics of this game, and he's he's learning the how to play it, and he's gotten quite good, uh, and I'm I've been pretty impressed. Uh, and so, what is his future Zelda game going to be interested in? If this was his first big experience of, of playing Zelda, then what what you know what is what is his memories that he will bring forward as the next Link? Um, 
<laughs> and we and we kind of uh, assume once a franchise gets to be uh, what gets to be 35 years old, which for some players of Zelda is, is longer than they've been alive, um, we kind of start to assume that it's just an ingrained institution now. Um, and but what 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 if it what if it isn't? You know what what if it concludes? How could they tie up all the threads at this point? You know if we were to take a a more kind of uh, if we were to take uh, a, a different approach to the idea of reincarnation than Plato's uh, and imagine, you know, an attempts to follow the Dharmic path until you have, you know, followed the path of the right enough to reach, you know, nirvanic retirement, will Link and Zelda ever achieve that? Are they, you know, bodhisattvas who have definitely accrued enough goodwill points to do that, but still choose to remain behind again and again and again to help the actual inhabitants of the worldly plane? But when when will they get to retire? When will it be enough? When will the series conclude? Ever? Is that desirable? I, I don't know. When can, when can they truly defeat Ganon? Like, how, <laughs> how, many, how many times must Ganon be defeated? Like, you know, and with with so much spacing between some of the times of these stories like you know hundreds and thousands of years um you know that uh, like how often does it come back is it like literally every generation that like there's this big threat or is it like every like couple hundred years um yeah there, there's so much to be dived into there uh so i want to um steer us towards so you talked about it a little bit earlier about like the intentional design especially in the older games so I wanted to talk a little bit about temples uh, and then have that kind of be the last of our bullet points. And then we had two user submitted questions uh, that we wanted to briefly consider from our uh, Google form that people signed up on. Uh, and then we can also start opening for other questions. But so temples, uh, we're talking about the theology of Legend of Zelda. Um, you got to talk about the religious uh, encounters of, of Legend of Zelda. And each, each game you have something uh, generally called a temple of some sort. Um, I think that one's pretty common across all of the games. Uh, so, so what are these temples? You know, do do they come across to you as uh, a place of actual worship, or are these places of exploration and growth, and like kind of this uh, sense that you know we must uh, reach our best self? Um, so, you know, what 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 has been your experience with the temples? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I so I you know I admit I. I go into these temples through the in-game avatar of Link, and I look around them, and I and I think this is really not layperson friendly. This this space, you know, anyone going there who isn't equipped with, you know, divinely imbued artifacts is not going to last very long. There are bridges suspended over lava, design flaw, you know. Um, so if they're not really just, they're two, you know, two things come to mind. One, we're just seeing them in a time of invasion and corruption. We're often sent into the temples as Link to, you know, to purify those spaces of the of the uh, elements that have, you know, stormed the keep, really. And then you could also think of it even in the best of times as something that is specifically designed as a proving ground for the hero. And, uh, but does that mean that, uh, you know, that there this, this, this hierarchy, it has to be totally static, that no you know, regular congregant could find that in themselves and storm the keep and overcome the trials therein. You know, I, I don't know. It seems to me that a lot of them are designed specifically with a particular treasure, with a particular set of powers, and with a particular hero in mind. And so that's not especially that's not especially democratic. It's not especially um, service friendly. You know, and so that that is the first thing that strikes me about 
associating these uh, video game levels with a name like temple as a, as a place of, of worship. What, what do you think about that? What's your impression? Yeah, some of them are definitely, you know, much more dungeons uh, in, in that sense. Uh, as I said in the chat, you call this a design flaw. I think uh, personally, the, you know, lava moats sounds like a really great idea for fourth universalist. Uh, I'm not sure if Skylar is still on the chat, but uh, if, if you are Skylar, just please note that for future re renovation ideas. Does that count as landmark preservation still? I don't know. I think so. Every, I mean, who wouldn't think it's a landmark? I mean, so, you know, I think that uh, the, with the, the knowledge of Ocarina of Time I have, I know that there is like the, the spirit temple, which is uh, the Gerudo temple, basically. And it's much more like religious looking. Um, and you have like the Temple of Time and the sacred grounds and all of this and, and some of the other games. Uh, but besides that, most of the other ones definitely seem much more like just uh, places of adventure versus uh, places to be um, worshiping at. Um, uh, and, you know, but interestingly, uh, like, I, I feel like as in the more recent games, like, so you had, um, you had uh, Wind Waker, which didn't really necessarily call a lot of things temples, you just went to these dungeons. Uh, and then you had um, Twilight Princess, which then returned to like the idea of, of temples, I think a little bit more uh, but then Skyward Sword had like the sacred ground, which is became like the Temple of Time later on and other, other things. And uh, then Breath of the Wild has like the, you know, this Temple of Time has um, these religious gathering areas that like are, have now been destroyed in the world. Uh, but that at one time, these were like places of religious pilgrimage. Uh, and uh, so I found it interesting that they did try and finally like actually like take up that religious part uh, of all of this like you know so um, this actually ties in uh, quite well with uh, one of the uh, user submitted uh, questions um, player submitted if we, if we use Zelda language uh, one of our one of our um, uh, it was about basically you know what what is the faith of like Hyrule and of is it an interfaith are they all practicing different religions because we have different uh, one of the things we haven't even talked about is that you know there's Gorons the rock people there's Zora the fish there's fish people uh, Rito that are bird people later on and there's even like two different branches of them there's the Koroks in the most recent ones there's there's all of these different um, people groups of, of different very different experiences and then there's like the, the stereotypical humans so do they do they all share this belief in like the uh the three goddesses or do they all have their own things i know that with the spirit temple the 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 gerudo who are the the people that the ganon the bad guy comes from that they have like this goddess that they believe in like the sand goddess i can't i think is the name off the top of my head um i might be wrong you can correct me if i'm wrong um but you know so what what is the the religion of do you like do you get the feeling that like each of these groups has their own different religious experience or do you think that they uh, all kind of share the same general belief and how does that maybe change over time uh, well it's always interesting to bring uh, questions of belief and faith into an in-game experience where um where theophany is kind of a regular occurrence, where magical powers and the um, and the spirits to which they are owed is a demonstrable practical element of the world. What does it mean to say I do or don't believe in in that particular in-game circumstance? Um, so I, I don't I don't. But and yet words like you know subjective words like legend do get thrown around. Um, 
my understanding, uh, of, anyway, with the, the games that I've experienced with the Ocarina in-game world, I suppose I would probably use a word like uh, henotheistic instead, because it, it seems that there is local differences of of belief and of sacred objects and of you know <laughs> megafaunal guardian entities like the giant whale lord jabu jabu um which you go inside of like jonah um but they don't uh, they don't necessarily deny the existence of adjacent tribes or peoples their sacred objects or ruling entities um and so there is there is uh, pluralism there and it's not mutually exclusive and so then there's regional objects and entities, but uh, it does seem that they are still tending towards that, uh, those three goddesses of the creation, towards the, the Triforce. Um, you don't hear a word, at least in my Zelda gaming experience, you don't hear words like, uh, like heresy so much. You know, even the, the antagonists within that world, like Ganon, um, acknowledge the Triforce and desire that it be whole, acknowledge that it's at its most powerful when it's whole. Right. So, so it's, um, yeah, so I don't know that I'd call it interfaith, um, but probably uh, henotheism at the regional level uh, has elements of polytheism because the three goddesses are involved and has elements of monotheism because um, they all tend towards that unified symbol of the Triforce. Um, so again, it goes back to that, <laughs> that, that beautiful uh, ecumenical incoherence <laughs> of the whole series. So I'm telling you, you know, after this, I'm just going to spend the night writing, writing the fan fiction of, of the Council of Nicaea taking place in the Legend of Zelda world. Um, so you mentioned Ganon there, talking about how Ganon does long after this power, like that even as the bad guy, as the devil of the series, that he uh, is still wanting the thing that like the goddesses have. Um, so one of the uh, submitted questions, and it's something that we had kind of pondered already a little as well, uh, is... So like Ganon and so Ganon is like the holder of the Triforce of Power in this one. You know, is he, uh, is power inherently evil? Is Ganon inherently evil? Uh, you know, what is this idea of Ganon continually, like the, of evil continually coming back each generation? What does that tell us about evil? Um, I, I'd be curious for some of your thoughts and then I can, I'll, I'll share some uh, in response. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, again, I think that the series is more, uh, that if there is to be a, a moralistic uh, and ethical takeaway, uh, the series is more focused on uh, on on balance than on um, you know impugning any one of those virtues. So uh, it, power is a part of the playing experience. Right, the Link gets a lot of it by, by the end of the series. He gets a lot enough of it that he's able to confront the the keeper of the the power third of that Triforce. He gets magical artifacts, he gets spells, he gets, uh, he gets allies, he gets uh, a horse and various other uh, steeds that <laughs> aid him on his journey. So, so power is not something that the, character, that the player is taught to shun necessarily. It's the, uh, the uh, wise and willful exercise of it that is, that is cautioned. Um, but yeah, there is certainly that, that uh, dualistic element. Uh, there, there's no question that in in the Legend of Zelda series overall, and this is a criticism get, gets applied to uh, the Lord of the Rings mythology a lot as well. You know, aren't we a little far along in the human experience to still be talking about good versus evil? Uh, it, sure, and you can't really break away from the fact that those series do represent those those objects, that they are, there are incarnations of those ideas. 
Um, but within those two polls, there are also there's also a lot of ambiguity. Majora's Mask, which we touched on briefly, it, it kind of makes ambiguity its staple. Uh, there are characters along every step of that gradation, um, and sometimes evil isn't isn't represented as uh, a pure physical incarnation. Um, it's represented in what uh, what uh, what Augustine would have described as privative evil in that evil is something that works on good. It is, it is the loss of good, it is the straying from good, it is decay and corruption and deterioration. So evil is necessarily, uh, necessarily requires that there be good as a substrate in the first place. And that means that all evil has a connection to good. And so there, there are characters that exemplify this, ones that start out, uh, start out antagonistic and we realize that there's something some personal issue going on, and when they are relieved of that pressure, they become allies. Uh, there are characters who, when they're at their, when everything's going well and they're at their best, they behave uprightly. Um, but when things fall apart and the invasion begins, we see them, you know, key into that more, more craven element of themselves. Uh, so, so yes, this this series does establish signposts of good and evil. Uh, can't get away from that, uh, but it does populate the space in between. I would say. Well, I was going to say that perhaps it's the courageous and wise use of power, um, you know, to, to refer it back to the Triforce here for, to get us all three. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I think that it's, it's interesting. And I think that uh, to some little, like, I don't know how much it, it is in just like for a regular gameplay experience, but, you know, they, they hint at it a little bit in the mythos that like, maybe like the royal family isn't quite so perfect. Like in Breath of the Wild, there's these Sheikah that have had to like, uh, basically like repress their technology because the like royal family feared it and uh, there's uh, the Hyrulean civil war that took place before Ocarina of Time and other other things like that that are kind of put in there as like a well maybe it's a little bit more complicated than just like this guy wants to ruin everything um, but yeah they, they definitely you know I think with establishing the, the mythos that they did with Skyward Sword they definitely made it like you know that there's this 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 evil that just keeps coming back um, but, you know, I like what you said about thinking about uh, how evil just tends to be part of having, having good in the world, having uh, beautiful things, that some people will take that power and not act courageous and wise with it, but instead uh, twist it to be just power and pure power. Um, and I think, yeah, there, um, there's, there's definitely, you know, stuff to be uh, looked at there with any game like this, you know, like are, are people, as one of the questions phrased it, are people inherently a hero or a villain? Um, you know, like, it's a good question. Like, you know, we, we don't, um, I don't think in life that we, I think to some extent in life, we, we assign hero and villain status to people, especially uh, in a very media obsessed culture as we are. Um, but, you know, I think that we know that most people are more complicated than being just pure evil or just uh, pure hero. Um, but yeah, I think it definitely kind of happens in, in stories like like The Legend of Zelda that that it becomes this hero versus versus villain. But I, I do appreciate uh, when they try to make it a little bit more complicated. Well, thinking about uh, the the you know light and dark world motif that comes back so frequently in this series, uh, you always start out in the you know, so-called healthy or light world, right? And then uh, whether because of a time lapse or because of a parallel world or an overlaid spirit realm, uh, you, see the, you see the degradation of that world exercised, but you can never get away from the template 
um, of, of memories that was instilled by that world at its at its healthiest. Right. So um, the, throughout the game sees evil as something that has to be applied to a, a baseline of at least neutrality. Um, and, and we can never fully escape that even when, you know, uh, in Ocarina of Time, uh, one of the most famous moments when you you draw the Master Sword, you go to sleep for seven years, you wake up, suddenly you're an adult, it blew the minds of many children who had, you know, maybe never even played a 3D game before, myself included, uh, and then you come out of the Temple of Time into what was once this uh, vibrant, bustling burg of, uh, of Hyrule Castle Town, and it's ravaged by fire and uh, storefronts that you once uh, that you once frequented are devastated, and the town square is filled with uh, with zombie creatures. Um, and so you you aren't you aren't looking at a perfect incarnation of evil. You are looking at what was left of something that you attached to. And so I think that that uh, that, that that is always wanting to tend back to a a, a positive baseline is something that. Uh, that the game repeatedly shows us every time that it uses that that model. That has me thinking about. Uh, so first of all, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, leave leave a comment uh, now if you have a question before we end the live stream on Facebook. Uh, if you want to uh, type a question, feel free to go ahead and leave it in the chat. Uh, if not, we will like let people speak. We will we will give the powers of unmuting, uh, they will be loosened. Uh, but um, uh, one of the interesting things about the most recent game, Age of Calamity, which is uh, a prequel-ish of sorts um, of, of the Breath of the Wild, is it gives you this, this look at what this world where you've seen it all in Calamity, like you've seen the, the downfall of it, what, what did it look like before, which is, you know, kind of the opposite of the, the normal Zelda experience. Uh, so we've we started with seeing this broken down world and now we're seeing uh, the, the put together world. But I, I, I do think it's interesting that they, they give us this um, ability to look at, um, to see the world as neutral or as good and then see, you know, what, what it would look like with, with things changed in the dark world. I'm, I know Link Between Worlds does that as well as, as um, kind of playing on the same sort of thing, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I'm gonna go really quickly, check the Facebook, see if we have, we have a, usually a minute delay there, see if we have any questions on there. Uh, but if not, we would love to field some questions from you all. So let me take a look here while you guys go ahead and either cue them up in the chat box or hit your raise hand emoji or raise your hand for real and uh, Colin and I can take a look, but I just wanna check our Facebook before we end that live stream. It looks like we are good. Thanks you to any who have joined us on Facebook or future YouTube recordings.